0: Hello, and welcome to the Wind Power Podcast. I'm Ian Griggs, Deputy Editor of Wind Power Monthly, and today I'm very lucky to be joined by the British wind industry pioneer, Andrew Garad. Andrew has been professionally involved in the wind industry for more than four decades in a variety of guises, including as founder of the respected engineering consultancy, Garad Hassan, and as a former president of Wind Europe, then known as the European Wind Energy Association. Now semi-retired, Andrew is nonetheless still active in helping communities to harness wind power for themselves, and he is the Royal Academy of Engineering Visiting Professor of Renewable Energy at the University of Bristol, where he is, no doubt, helping to shape the next generation of wind industry professionals. Welcome to the show, Andrew.
1: Hello, Ian. Nice to be
0: here. Tell me, how and why did you come into the wind industry in the first place?
1: I was rather a sort of dilettante engineering mathematician. My love was maths. I did a PhD on uh, the flow of water over dolphins, which was a fascinating thing to do. In those days, you could get money to do pretty much anything as a PhD. (laughs) At the end of that, I got a letter, a joint letter from the US Navy and the British Admiralty saying, would I like to continue doing that for them? And I thought, Blimey, no, <laughs> I wouldn't. That made me suddenly decide i better make an active decision rather than a passive one. And so I decided energy was the thing. And I looked at all the different types of, of energy, including nuclear and geothermal waves, tidal, solar, uh, and wind. And at that point, which was 1979, uh, they were all much of a muchness. And I was really rather lucky that I, I chose wind, which turned out to be, to be the winner, I wanted to do something which was clean. This was before we even thought about climate change, and it was technically very interesting. And it was just starting. Um, You know, there weren't any wind turbines really anywhere.
0: Roughly, how old were you at this point? Twenty-five. And what did your parents think, given that you garnered all these impressive qualifications, and this was an area which was completely untested? Did they have any opinion on that? Not really. I think
1: they well, they didn't really have much interest in the dolphin skins either. My father was a school teacher. my mother was a musician, so nobody was particularly well qualified to make a judgment on what I was doing. But when I got married, which was shortly after that, my wife's uncle, who was also her godfather, made a speech at the wedding, and he was the chairman of Cleveland Bridge, which built most of the world's suspension bridges. And he took my father aside and told him that I should really be persuaded to give up this nonsense. he said no future, and if I was a rail engineer, I should do something completely different. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs)
0: so tell us what were those early wild west days in the wind industry like did you get the impression that people around you in the industry knew what they were doing or were they making it up or the kind word for that innovating as they went along
1: i think in those days there were only two very distinct bits of the wind energy industry one was the the big corporate bit in my case i worked for for an alliance of British Aerospace, GE, and Taylor Woodrow, but likes of Messerschmitt, MAN, Air Italia, Boeing, Halton Standard. Those guys were all getting big chunks of money because the various governments thought if there was going to be a future for wind, it would have to be big stuff. And they thought, well, it looks a bit like an airplane or a helicopter, so we should give money to these big aerospace companies to develop big machines. And so we were involved in late 70s, early 80s, developing 50, 60, 70 meters. Diameter turbines. And there was a lot of science, uh, a lot of money, and a lot of science, and a lot of third rate aerospace engineering going into it because the aerospace people didn't really want to do it. They wanted to make aeroplanes. But that was one group. And then the other group, which was completely distinct, and there was really no communication between the two, was small shops in mostly in Denmark and Germany literally developing things in their backyards. I mean, I remember going to a meeting in the early days of Mekon, one of the Danish manufacturers, and literally sitting on a bale of hay talking to the chief engineer. So they were developing commercial turbines, which were tiny at that point. I mean, they were were 10 metres in diameter, was big. To to say they didn't know what they were doing would be wrong. To say that they were being guided by science would also be wrong. There was an official rule of thumb developed by Riso National Laboratory in Denmark called Guideline to Wind Turbine Design, which gave you some very simple equations to use to make these small turbines. So there were these two distinct groups, the big corporate guys with, with quite a lot of differential equations in science and computers and these pragmatic guys developing the smaller ones. And these were megawatts and those were, were kilowatts. Then later on, they came together. But in the early days, they would try it and, and see if it worked phrase I use, which was survival is success. If it hadn't broken apart in during its first test. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. And that didn't apply to the big guys. I mean, the big guys had to make it work because they were coming from aerospace. It was a pragmatic approach and... All sorts of extraordinary um, devices were produced which we wouldn't recognise now, including vertical axis as well as horizontal axis, one blade as well as two. Everything was
0: available. So all the previous iterations of what wind might have looked like in another scenario were tested and obviously we've arrived at probably
1: not the final iteration, but we've, we've come a long way over that time, haven't we? My view is that we have we reached the consensus of the three-bladed upwind turbine, partly due to engineering and partly due to human acceptance, because the two-bladed turbines work perfectly well from an engineering point of view, indeed, some might say better, but people did not want to live next door to them. So they were dumped, not to the engineering qualities, but because of social acceptance. And the vertical axis... They were rather beautiful in many ways, particularly the egg beaker ones, but they turned out, in that scale at least, to be more expensive. So we ended up with a consensus, three-bladed upwind turbines, and then at a certain scale, those turbines essentially destroyed themselves. They went into some very violent vibrations, and we had to stop that. The Danish early turbines were agricultural mechanical engineering and glass polyester low-tech boat building for the blades, and that's where we began. And now everything is computer controlled, all the blades are twitching, the rotational speed varies, there's sensors everywhere, and it's like a helicopter. So we've moved from tractor to helicopter.
0: I think that's a good analogy. And over the more than four decades that you've worked in this sector, what's kept you interested in the wind industry over the course of your career? I've
1: spent roughly half my life away from home somewhere in the world. And so sometimes on a Sunday night, working through the night somewhere, On the other side of the world, I think, why am I doing this? And then maybe it's lack of imagination, but I haven't been able to think of anything I would prefer to do. I mean, it has been absolutely fascinating. It started off with five, 10-metre diameter turbines, now 200, 250-metre diameter turbines, and it's been a fantastic business, and it's worthwhile. I mean, what more could you ask for? I have no second thoughts at all. I'm absolutely convinced. I've been immensely lucky to have been involved in this industry from the very beginning, people used to talk about alternative energy in a slightly patronising way. Now, it's one of the alternatives, you know, like hydro, nuclear, gas, coal and wind.
0: Yes, and it's the one of the most competitive of the lot, right? Oh, it's
1: wonderful, isn't it?
0: <laughs> <laughs> so over that kind of period of time... What are the career
1: highlights? Well, I'm going to give a slightly pompous answer to that. My real enthusiasm is mathematical modelling. What I've done personally is develop mathematical models of these huge machines. And the only reason why we can produce a 250-metre diameter machine now is because we can predict really very accurately what it'll do, how it'll work. I'm quite a keen atheist. But the closest I think I get to a religious experience is when you take a turbine, a huge turbine, you develop it into a mathematical model, you solve that mathematical model, and you get some physical results. You get a set of measurements, not by me, because I'm not competent, that by somebody else. And you find, by some extraordinary freak, that the two agree. You think, wow, (laughs) that is absolutely... Amazing. And of course, if they don't agree, that's when you learn. You say, oh, we must have got that wrong. We better change something. The thing that's kept me going, I suppose you could say, is that the fact that we can predict the world's biggest rotating machines behave. On the more commercial front, we were the technical advisors to the first billion euro, first billion dollar and first billion pound project. I mean, those are arbitrary levels. But when we moved from a few kilowatts to to talking in billions, that was also thrilling for me. I can imagine
0: the industry that you'd given a lot of your time and energy to had started to grow up and become a, a really viable proposition. It was no longer yes. kind of messing about yes, anymore. Absolutely. I mean, I'm not saying it was messing about before, but it was being taken seriously. <laughs> but we were finding our way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Too any regrets. As far as your time in the wind industry is concerned?
1: I set up a consulting company, which turned out to be quite successful. And part of the reason why it was successful, or one of the major rules we imposed on ourselves at the beginning, is we would not ever have a share in the turbine, either in the design or even own a turbine. Right. So I've managed to spend 45 years in this business without owning a turbine. I can't take you to any turbine anywhere in the world and say, that's mine, either that I own it or that I designed it. We've had a part in designing hundreds of machines. I think I could have taken another turn somewhere and said, "Okay, forget this consultancy. I'm going to become a manufacturer. Yes. That might have been a total disaster, (laughs) but it would have taken me in a completely different direction. And I would have been able to look at some lovely bit of hardware and say, wow, look at that. That's mine. I will never, ever be able to do that. But I I can say I've got a little bit of thousands of projects all, all over the world. So that's my personal regret.
0: We met in the summer at the Global Wind Energy Council's one terawatt party to celebrate the global installation of a terawatt of wind power energy. What's your prognosis as to the installation of the next terawatt globally? How long do you think it will take? And what do you consider to be the major roadblocks to that?
1: I think you could probably say that from a standing start, first terawatt's taken, say, 50 years. In the first 30 years, not much happened. In the the subsequent 20 years, most of it was installed that was done, that 50 years, started off with people just laughing at it. It's only in the last 20 years that people have really started to think seriously about climate change, seriously considered renewables as a viable means of generation. Certainly, the next terawatt cannot take 50 years, and I would like to think that it could be done in five. Why not? Everybody mourns on about climate change and its existential risk to humanity, If they really believe that, which they should, then there's absolutely no reason why that shouldn't be done. What are the obstacles? The obstacles, I think, are twofold. One is political. We need to have clear commitment from the various politicians and public around the world. And then the second is grid connection. Grid connections will, I think, ultimately be the biggest obstacle, and we need to be all getting going at that right now. There's also, of course, all the supply chain issues. But if we concentrate on clear and simple objectives, which can be could really be apolitical, if everybody agrees to existential threat of climate change, then everybody should agree we should get on and do it. There is one little thing that rather interesting engineering thing that comes out of this is that when i chosen wind rather than the others, amazingly, it's heading for almost exactly the same cost price for generation as all these tiny bits of electronics. And I think that's a fascinating thing. Maybe there's some fundamental physical rule which takes you to that particular cost. The PV started much, much higher than wind even, say, 15 years ago and has come down, plummeting down. Wind energy has taken a more gentle, but nevertheless quite a precipitative trajectory. And they all appear to be ending in pretty much the same place, which
0: I think is extraordinary. That is extraordinary. Looking at the UK more specifically for a moment, and you were talking about political will and how this should be apolitical in order to get this done. But of course, it's not apolitical, is it? Do you think there is the political will in the UK to transition to clean energy quickly, especially when you consider the government's tinkering with the onshore wind ban in the UK, the latest CFD auction
1: results, and the current UK policy towards renewables versus fossil fuels? I think there isn't a political will amongst the politicians. the lobby that seems to be against renewables, there's quite a small caucus of Conservative MPs. So you mentioned last week's events. I mean, tragic. No bids on the CFD for offshore wind. They've known for three months or so that was not going to happen. How could wind energy, offshore wind energy, have escaped in cost inflation? How could it be unlike any other industry anywhere in the world? How could the prices for offshore wind not... Be increased, so it would have been a simple matter of them listening to the industry. Everybody was telling them that this wouldn't work, and of course it hasn't worked. They've made a complete mess of it, and they could undo the mess in a couple of days and say, "Okay, we'll increase the price to something else." So that's one side. It's been terrific for me to have seen the success of the UK offshore wind, sadly without much in the way of UK manufacturing. Nevertheless, you know we have been leading the way in the application or installation of offshore wind, which is wonderful. Uh, So we're tripping up others catch up, but that's not really the point. This is just a complete bungle. Onshore, they said they were going to uh, make it easier to to get permitting for onshore turbines. What they did actually was put in one little footnote in the previous regulation, which essentially moved it from being virtually impossible to being very, very difficult. Is that the way to react to a climate change emergency? I think not. I think UK public is actually pretty well disposed to wind. There will be, of course, some who don't want it, and it does have a polarising effect. People either see it as a symbol of clean power for the future or as a blot on the landscape. My view is if people say they're against this, unless you're against electricity, you've got to be for something. So what are you for? And then if you turn it around in that direction, you get quite a different response. Yeah, absolutely right. And I think you said that Conservative
0: MPs were actually completely out of step with the UK public on onshore wind. And that's been proven, hasn't it, by polling. In every constituency in the UK, there is actually majority support for onshore wind power to be installed.
1: Yes. It was a very good headline, actually. It was in one of the Conservative papers, which, which was a surprise, which said, oh, Wind power is more popular than baked beans. <laughs> I think originally. When Wind Energy started, it was seen as some sort of socialist form of generation. So we all had Guardian readers stamped on our head. And if mm. you got Guardian Reader stamped on your head, it's very yes, hard yes. for the Telegraph readers to take it seriously. That's starting to happen, but it's taken a long time.
0: And the right-wing press are no longer writing the wind industry off as knitting sandal-wearing hippies. I did think about putting a tie on before I came along. <laughs> I'm glad you didn't because I'm a little underdressed today. <laughs> in a recent LinkedIn post, you described the policy backdrop towards renewables in the UK right now as one of, and I quote you, active discouragement. Why do you think there is an unwillingness to fully embrace renewables in the UK government? And do you think that that will change if we see a new... Administration voted in at the next general election.
1: Until last week, it was easier to get planning permission to build, say, a waste incinerator than to build a single wind turbine because a single person could object, that would be it. And then there was a ministerial approval I had to go through. To my mind, that was all goes back to the Cameron's fear of what the backbench Tory MPs thought. Until last week, it really was virtually impossible to get planning permission for a, for a turbine. I think. In England, three turbines were built last year. Three turbines in the whole country. Is that a proper reaction to a climate emergency? No. What happened last week was a tiny, tiny change. I don't think that policy reflects the British public. So assuming we get a change of government next year, I would expect to see a significant change in policy and attitude. There's a new Minister of Energy. My message to her would be, well, you've got a year to stamp her personality on this renewable energy business, change the CFD, ease up the onshore wind planning and say, okay, that's what I did when I had a year as a minister.
0: So you're now involved in community wind projects in the UK. You were celebrating a turbine going up in Bristol. How do you think projects such as these can empower local people, not just in terms of receiving the clean energy, but feeling like they're doing something to meet the challenges of climate change? Because people don't feel like they can do anything. They feel helpless and powerless.
1: Do you feel that Community Wind is empowering to people in that sense? So I think it can be. After six years of development, including planning commission and leases and so on, It's England's biggest onshore turbine, it's 115 metres in diameter, and it belongs to Lawrence Western, which is one of the 10% most deprived communities in the UK. How interested are they in zero carbon? A bit. I would say, but they've got a lot of other things which are are more pressing for them. The money coming from the turbine goes straight into a community trust which right now will be dealing with fuel poverty and food you know and cost of living crisis. I'm not sure that it will be wise to try and repeat that size completely by coincidence. The projected annual output of this turbine balances almost exactly, the electricity consumption of Lawrence Weston. So they can say, we're getting all our electricity from this winter. I mean, it has attracted a huge amount of attention for exactly the reason that you're discussing. It shows that a community can do something. However, it has been very, very difficult. And we've had a bunch of very committed people who have devoted five or six years of their lives to getting the damn thing Going it shouldn't have been necessary. And we have a lease for Bristol City Council, and that city council has a guy whose job it is to make as much money as he can out of Bristol City's land. At the same time, Bristol City Council quite an aggressive zero carbon aim. I think the same thing will be happening in every other city that should be from the top down. Here's a decision we have to make how does this fit with our zero carbon goal? If yes, fast track it. So, we're the one of the very first turbines in the UK not to have any form of government-backed power purchase agreement. It's merchant power. Almost every other turbine you see in the UK had some sort of government-backed power purchase agreement, which meant borrowing money was much easier. So that's another... So there are various regulatory and statutory issues which need to be addressed in order to make it simpler. So I think if it could have been done in a couple of years rather than six years, people will follow in our model. And we're still facing an assumption against wind. Yes, it's been great. People are very pleased to have it. And it has been a dramatic presentation of local action. I'd like to say we have a blueprint to make it very easy for everybody else. I think what we have is a lot of experience which we can use. But
0: despite all the difficulties, I bet you're still happy that you built that rather than a waste plant incinerator, right? I mean,
1: I do go down there sometimes and just sit underneath it and watch it go right. <laughs> <laughs> <That's laughs> the fact that I've been doing this for 45 years doesn't make it any less exciting for me to sit and watch it. I mean, it's uh, Maybe, I guess I mentioned earlier on, maybe it's just lack of imagination, but I still find it thrilling.
0: <laughs> I don't think it's lack like of imagination at all. I think that's fantastic, actually. Let's look wider than the UK... Which global markets do you think are the most exciting today and why?
1: I used to have a lot of knowledge. Now all I've got is wisdom. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that'll do. The most exciting market really has to be China because it's so big and expanded so fast. When I first went to China, there was no wind turbine there at all. I was the chairman of the first international wind energy conference in Beijing. At that point, not a single power generation wind turbine. Now they've just built the world's biggest turbine. I think where there is space and there's wind, uh, there can be wind energy. It doesn't have to be giant. All the attention now gets focused on these massive offshore wind turbines. The dominant market is still onshore wind. One particularly fascinating trip, I remember Moroccan utility, when they O&E, when they were developing their first wind farms. We flew down to a site in a tent with a whole bunch of European bankers all sweating in a tent. The landing on one side, the Sahara on the other side, wind streaming across, sun pouring down and space everywhere. What I've seen is what you need to get a good market is confidence and stability. We used to have a monthly call with a guy who ran our office in Australia, but it seemed like every other month it would be on and then off, on and off. You have to have confidence and consistency.
0: Following on from that, which countries are providing that policy consistency to attract the wind industry and the investment behind the wind industry?
1: I think Denmark has provided leadership in that. I mean, it's a tiny country and, of course, it's pretty much full up. But if you want to look at a model of how to to provide a confident market, you have to look there.
0: So you're staying in Europe, under the Net Zero Act proposed by the EU, they want to produce more turbines in Europe, but all the turbine firms are making a loss. That being the case, how can these investments and capacity needed to reach these EU goals be found for ports and manufacturing facilities, etc.? There seems to be a bit of a mismatch here between the EU's ambition and the ability of the OEMs in their current state of
1: financial health to deliver on that. I think that's quite true. So it is a curious thing that there's a huge demand for the OEMs product and so a very buoyant market. And yet I think all of them, the big scale, are making a, a loss. And I think this comes back actually to confidence and consistency. I think it's quite clear that the industry can produce what's needed technically. We all need confidence in long-term policy to allow us to invest. So I don't believe there is a shortage of money. If people have confidence in the market, the money will come, the investments for infrastructure will come. The prices, I think, will rise. We have done a fantastic job of, of making particularly offshore wind, but wind energy in general, cheaper. That can't be done independently of what's happening to the global economy. So the prices will rise a bit. But that is not a reflection on the industry or the technology. That's a reflection on the global economics. Staying on turbine manufacturers, what's your view of the so-called
0: turbines arms race argument, e.g. the trade-off between producing larger and more powerful turbines constantly versus perfecting existing models, producing them at scale in order to meet the global energy transition faster? Are
1: turbine manufacturers going too fast for their own good? They're all competing one with another. My guess is they would all like to stop at the size they are now, crystallise things and optimise rather than grow. But it's very hard to do that when you have the competitive environment. Particularly, I think the Chinese influence, Were they love to be slightly bigger than the West. I would like to stop it. And I, I don't know if there could be a consensus around the world. Okay, let's have five years with nothing bigger and let's settle down and look for availability or reliability rather than growth. We designed Samsung's turbine, at the time it was done, it was the world's biggest turbine, which was immensely exciting. That acolyte lasted for about six weeks, but I was terribly proud of that. There's a lot of kudos to making the biggest. I think it needs to stop. It would be great the big OEMs could get together and somehow have some sort of cartel agreement.
0: Which I was told in no uncertain terms would wind turbine manufacturer last summer would never ever happen. You received an award at GWEC's Terawatt Party for your services to the wind industry uh, earlier this summer. How do you feel about the mantle of Wind Industry Pioneer? (laughs)
1: Well, I I mean, I'm very, of course, very proud to be called that, very proud to have received the award. There are plenty of other people, though. I mean, (laughs) there are quite a lot of people like I think of who should have got an award, and quite a lot of people who are dead. (laughs) So it's been wonderful to be working with all these very, very uh, enthusiastic and capable people. It's been a great honour, terrifically exciting. A mantle is something you have to pass on, isn't it? So that's the next day. What do I do with my mantle?
0: (laughs) Andrew, I've really enjoyed speaking to you and I could speak to you all day long. Thank you so much indeed for appearing on the Wind Power Podcast and talking to me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to me. Thanks for listening to the Wind Power Podcast. We'll be back soon with another episode to explore the issues which are driving the wind industry. In the meantime, for the latest news, expert opinion and analysis, visit windpowermonthly.co.uk for daily updates or to sign up for one of our specialist bulletins, delivered straight to your inbox.